The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is David Scranton. He's the CEO and founder of a firm called Sound Income Strategies. Uh, he's also come out with a new book called uh, Return on Principle, Seven Core Values, to help protect your money in good times and bad. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, David. Hey, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Let's just start with your background a little bit, uh, leading up to the firm you founded and writing this book, but kind of give us a little bit of your history. Well, my history is, is I think, like a lot of people in this business. I started in the financial business uh, 30 years ago. Actually, uh, I'm six months shy of my 30th anniversary. And that put us in the middle of the best bull market in U.S. history in the 1980s. So it's no surprise that when I started in the business, I started off being a stock market-based advisor, doing a lot of primarily mutual funds, but stock market-based mutual funds. And it was interesting because in late 1998, early 1999, I changed my business model. Uh, I had taken a look at certain secular stock market trends throughout history and I felt very strongly that we were going to slip into a, what's called a secular or long-term bear market cycle. And I did something that a lot of people in my industry don't have the courage to do, and that is I had the courage to change my business model completely, to go from being the stock market-based guy to being the guy that really specializes in this universe of what I like to call non-stock market income-generating strategies. And right place at the right time, you know, within a year after I made that change, the market started to drop when the tech bubble burst. And then, of course, it recovered and got hit again, even worse this time, with the financial crisis. So, in fact, one time I was interviewed by a local tele- uh, television station, and they, they asked me, what is the moment in your life, career-wise, of which you're most proud? And that was the easiest answer for me, and that is that, I did have the courage to change my business model when I knew that my old business model was no longer going to best serve my clients. And, you know, that shouldn't surprise anyone because if you think about it, orthopedic surgeons very seldom become chiropractors, and chiropractors very seldom become orthopedic surgeons. So that's why I wrote the book, Jordan, to, to really get people to understand that a lot of the values that surround money that most investment advisors have today are values that are misplaced. They're values that may have worked during the 80s and 90s, the best stock market in U.S. history, but they simply don't work in a market such as the one we've been in now for over 15 years. So we're going to get into the details of the seven core values, but let's just kind of start with where we are in the economic cycle. We've had interest rates falling for the last 30 years or so, basically, We've got the stock market soaring to all-time highs. Uh, interest rates on cash are pretty much zero. So is this the new normal, or are things too uh, high on the stock market? Kind of where do we stand in the economic and market cycle here? 
Well, it seems apparent to me that it's the new normal for interest rates. Uh, you're right. We've just had a generational uh, downward trend of about 35 years, actually, in interest rates. So I think this is the new norm for low interest rates. Why? Because in order to have higher interest rates, you have to have a little bit of inflationary pressure. You have to have more demand for goods and services. And with an aging population, you know, we, we you know, let's face it, most boomers today are over 51 years old, and they've already bought their dream homes. Um, they've, if anything, now their next move is to downsize. So they're not spending more money. They're actually at a stage in their life where they're spending a little bit less. And without that demand for goods and services, uh, at least a demand that wouldn't be here even to the level it is had not been artificially created by all the central banks around the world, then, then interest rates have to stay low in that kind of environment. This is just like what happened to Japan 25 years ago. Their baby boom generation was way ahead of ours, and that's why they've had 25 years of low interest rates and a st- pretty much a bad stock market, as we've seen also since the turn of the century. So how long do you think this low-interest rate environment could last? Low-interest rate environment, I know Japan's a great precursor for what we could see. I mean, we could see 25 years, just like they did, of low interest rates, low demand. Uh, We have a lot of deflationary pressures right now. So I see see that going on for a long time. Again, it's going to be the new norm. The stock market, on the other hand, which was the second part of your question, Jordan, is different. The stock market... uh, that is at a high now that, that is only at a high because of the unprecedented levels of government interference. I actually predicted in my newsletter that I wrote to my clients in May of 2008 that this would be the first time the Federal Reserve would lower short-term rates to zero because that had never been done before in this country. And when that's no longer a strong enough stimulant to get the economy going, they would invent unprecedented things to try to get things moving along. And that's exactly what's happened over the last eight years. So I believe the stock market wouldn't be at record highs right now if it hadn't been for this unprecedented level of stimulus here and abroad. And now that we're starting to see the central banks curb that stimulus, uh, I, I feel like we're pretty much at the top range of the stock market. And frankly, we're overdue for a pretty significant drop. So the U.S. stopped quantitative easing about two years ago or so, uh, but they're still doing a lot of quantitative easing in Europe and Japan and China and other central banks around the world. So is that the reason why stock markets have been doing so well? And you're saying if that was withdrawn, that would be a, a trouble for the stock market. Absolutely correct. You know, if you look at all the secular stock market cycles throughout history, um, a lot of people think that, gee, we went into the secular bear market cycle in 2000 when the tech bubble burst, In that 2013 is when we broke through those 2000 levels in the stock market. So a lot of people think, Okay, we recovered from the secular bear in 13 years, but you know history tells us that we'd be breaking three world records if that were true. Uh, first, it would be the first time we've ever recovered from a long-term secular bear market in as few as 13 years. Second, it would be the first time we've ever recovered from a secular bear without having three or more major drops within it. Right? So far, we've only had two. And lastly, it'll be the first time we recovered from a secular bear before price-to-earnings ratios get down into the single digits. Cause that hasn't happened either. So I believe the only reason that we're up 40% from the highs in 2000 and 2013 is because the unprecedented levels of government influence. And as now Europe is threatening to start to pull back, um, I think that leaves us at a point where the market is kind of levitating, 
And nobody really knows what the market would be worth had it not been for that. It's kind of like if you go in a gym and there's a guy bench pressing 400 pounds and you find out he's on anabolic steroids. Well, you can guess how much he might be able to bench press had he not been on the steroids, but nobody knows for sure. And that's where people are today. Nobody knows for sure where the market levels should be once the stimulus ends. So that's the conundrum for people then. The stock market's very high, and you're worried about it being overvalued. Bond yields mm-hmm. are very low. I mean, the long treasury at 1.7 or something like that. Cash is pretty much at zero these days. CDs, savings accounts, money market funds, pretty much at zero. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's where you come in, in your white horse, as the savior of the investor who doesn't know what to do in this environment. Is that right? <laughs> well said, Jordan. We, it's funny because... We, you know, Sound Income Strategies is a unique organization, my company, because very few people in the industry focus on fixed income bonds and bond-like instruments because most of the advisors that are out there today uh, of any magnitude got their start in the 80s and 90s, as I did, the best stock market in U.S. history. So their paradigm quickly became all about the stock market. And for most, that hasn't changed. When a lot of advisors today do bonds and bond-like instruments, which we call fixed income, uh, they do it as an afterthought. So a lot of them use bond funds. And, you know, bond funds are a real dangerous commodity right now where things are in the markets and the interest rate environment. Very few actually do individual bonds and bond-like instruments. And even fewer do uh, an active management of bonds and bond-like instruments in quite the way we do at Sound Income Strategies. So I tell people you can get 4 to 5% consistent interest or dividends all day long without touching the stock market. So basically you're saying people have been kind of in the bond uh, as an afterthought, but you're saying bonds should play a much bigger role in people's uh, investment lives today? Absolutely. Especially for those members, as we call them on my television show, members of the income generation, those that are born before 1966, because, you know, we got into this problem in the 1990s where a lot of people thought, well, I could retire, I could leave my money in the stock market in mutual funds. I could take a withdrawal, which in the mutual fund world, withdrawal means you're selling shares, i.e. spending principal. And it's going to be okay because next year I'm going to earn it right back. And through the 80s and 90s, that actually did happen. Um, but you know, now is a time when people are finally realizing that they need to get back to basics when it comes to their money. And back to the basics means when you approach retirement or you are retired, that means earning enough interest or dividends so that you can... You can live off your interest and not spend your principal, which is something, Jordan, your parents probably told you when you were very, very young. Don't ever spend your principal. Just spend your interest. And that's as true today and as good advice today as it was 40, 50 years ago. But a lot of savers feel very, I guess the word is discriminated against or, or dissed because they're supposedly doing the right thing by saving money, but then they earn nothing on it in the bank. They don't feel like they're able to get ahead or they're going to have to sell their principal if they're earning no interest on it. That seems to be the conundrum today. Well, and to, to further your conundrum is the fact that with medical technology, people are living longer and longer. And, you know, think of a 30-year mortgage. You know, the first year you pay off just a wee bit of principal, but yet somehow after 30 years that thing's paid off. Well, the same is true if an investor has a pile of money, spends all their interest, and spends a wee bit of principal. After 30 years, they will deplete that account. And... The, the mathematical probability of people living 30 years in retirement is going up dramatically every year that we wait. So it's, it's unfortunate because you're right, savers are getting penalized in this environment, but I really truly believe that it's the new norm 
for interest rates. And, and that's why some people are postponing retirement. Some people are maybe changing their retirement goals. You know, my goal with the television show, the book, and everything else is to get people to realize that, you know, if they've saved enough, that they can live the retirement they want. I call it a fearless retirement if they can be put themselves in a situation where they can retire by spending the interest and not be forced to spend principal. If you're spending principal, well, then, you know, in my opinion, you have no business being fearless because you're, you're really on a slippery slope. Indeed. Very good. All right, we're going to get into this in more detail. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. Uh, my guest this hour is David Scranton. He's the CEO and founder of Sound Income Strategies, which you can find out at soundincomestrategies.com. He's also the author of a new book called uh, Return on Principal, Seven Core Values to Help Protect Your Money in Good Times and Bad. The website for that is returnonprincipal.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is David Scranton. He's the CEO and founder of Sound Income Strategies. You can find out more about him at that website, soundincomestrategies.com. And he's just come out with a new book called Return on Principle, which is spelled CLE, Seven Core Values to Help Protect Your Money in Good Times and Bad. A website for that is Return on Principle, again, P. Uh, L-E, P-L-E at the end of the principle, uh, dot com. Welcome back to the show, David. Well, thank you. So let's get right into it. So what is principle number one uh, that you need to protect your money in these uh, times we're in today? Well, first, if I, if I may, I'd like to just say a little bit about how this book evolved. Uh, okay. The interesting thing here, I'd like to, Jordan, is that a lot of your listeners probably don't realize that in writing a book, it takes often a year and a half from start to finish. So you come up with a great idea, you think it's going to be popular, but by the time you get done writing and editing and through the publisher, it, it, the timing could be very good or very bad. You, you never know. In this case, we were very fortuitous because we actually, uh, just in the first week, we made two of Amazon's bestseller lists. Uh, so, and, and what's interesting about that is when we started the book, 
I started with a book that was more of a how-to book. It's about what I call the external game. So it had to do with algorithms, the when to buy, when to sell, and, you know, there are hundreds of books out there like that. Uh, how to determine what the right asset allocation is for you. Again, there's hundreds, if not thousands, of books like that. And that's what I call the outside game, the external game and of investing. And it was interesting because we had gotten about three, three quarters of the way through the manuscript, and I was going through the edit, and I just, one day, I remember looking in the mirror and saying, this isn't what people need. There are thousands of these books out there. People need to know, have the right mindset. It's like in golf. It's all about your swing thought, the right mindset before you take that swing. And we tore up the manuscript. I literally put it through the shredder. I remember the day I did this. And we decided we're going to write a book about the inside game, about the core values, what it takes for somebody to be a very good investor versus a not-so-good investor, and what it takes for an advisor to be a really good advisor versus one who perhaps is a mediocre or not-so-good advisor. Again, the inside game and those seven core values. And, Jordan, I didn't want this just to be a theoretical, psychological book. You know, we could theoretically put it in the, the psychology section of bookstores. But I said, I want it to be tangible and useful. So what we did is we gave concrete questions in the various sections, questions that people can ask themselves to determine if they possess the inside game as an investor, and more importantly, questions that they can go and ask their advisor to see if their advisor possesses the inside game. You know, just because somebody took the profession of being an advisor doesn't not necessarily mean that it's their best God-given talent in the world. You know, sometimes people get lured into certain businesses for other reasons. You know, some people become doctors not because they want to help people, because they want the money. Well, that yeah. happens in the financial advisory field first. So I guess that's the first thing I wanted to stress here. Okay, in, so it's in on the inside game. We did. Definitely on the inside game. Good. We have seven core principles. What is the first of your core principles? Well, the first one is overprotection. And we actually talked about that a lot just in, in the last segment. But, you know, it's based on the premise that most, and most people haven't thought about this, but if you lose 50% on your money, 5-0, you have to make 100% gain on the remaining balance just to get back to even. And that's just basic mathematics. But as basic as it is, a lot of people really haven't thought about that. So that's why it's so important to not go backward, not lose money. And, you know, think about a football team. That's all offense. You know, every time it gets the football in its hands, it scores a touchdown. But it had a terrible defense where every time the opponent got the football in their hands, they'd score a touchdown. Well, that team is never going to be winning the Super Bowl because they're all offense and no defense. And because of the mindset and the reasons we talked about earlier on, a lot of people have forgotten about defense when it comes to their money. And that's why overprotection, financial overprotection, is such an important number one core value in the book. So we talked about earlier how you think the stock market's really at inflated levels and interest rates are going to stay low for a long time. So what are some steps people can do to overprotect themselves on the downside to, to you know, do exactly what you're saying here? Well, I think the first thing is they need, to, they need to look in the mirror and honestly say, you know, how much can I lose without, without getting agita? I mean, you know, it's fine they lost almost half their money in some cases if they were across kind of broad-based across the stock market after the tech bubble burst, and then maybe close to 60% loss with the financial crisis. But, you know, as people get older, they can tolerate fewer and fewer losses. And the financial crisis now, the, the bottom of it was seven, uh, eight and a half, seven and a half years ago. So, you know, the first step is to say, okay, 
the, the next market drop uh, can be anywhere between 30 and 70%. 30%, in fact, history says it has to drop 30% to get back below those 2000 and 2013 levels so that we, we, we don't break those three world records regarding the stock market. 70% is how low it would be if it, if it re- dropped again to the bottom of where it was March 9th of 2009, just seven and a half years ago. So you have to say, if I, if I could lose 20% of my money, and that's based on a 70% drop, then maybe I should only have 30% of my money in the stock market. And that's how it really starts, is to say, look, if we do get another drop of two-thirds or so in magnitude, then, then how much is the maximum I'm willing to lose? And, and back into that number for how much, therefore, you keep in the stock market. And so the rest, and, if, you, if you're going to do, you're saying 70% stocks, maybe, the other 30%, you should put in your income strategies or cash, or what do you do to protect yourself against that kind of downside? Well, for many people that are retired or approaching retirement, the numbers are actually the, the opposite. They say, well, gosh, if I lose 20% of my money, that means I can only have 30% in the stock market. In that case, the other 70% would be in bonds and bond-like instruments. So whether you're talking about municipal bonds or high-grade corporate bonds or even medium-grade corporates or uh, preferreds or certain types of annuities or BDCs or certain types of REITs. I mean, the things that, again, before the 1970s that people invested in on a normal and ordinary basis when approaching retirement, but the things that today's investors might just be a little less familiar with. Yeah. Okay, so that the first principle is to protect yourself on the downside base. And you're saying a lot of people don't do that particularly with the market soaring here, they get overconfident is what you're saying is part of the psychological problem. Yeah, and even though it hasn't really oversoared, if you think about where it's been since the year 2000, we've only made 2 or 3% a year average over the last 16 years. But, you know, in life, it's our earliest paradigms are what shape our experiences. You know, there's a famous story that a lot of your listeners may have heard, uh, just a fable about a little girl that goes to her mom and says, Mommy, you know, why do we cut why do we cut the ends off the roast before we put the roast in the oven? And mom says, well, you know, I don't know, sweetheart, but we're going to see grandma tomorrow. And that's the way grandma always used to do it. So, so why don't we ask grandma? So the next day they go over to the grandmother's house and, and the little girl goes, grandma, why do you cut the ends off the roast before you put it in the oven? And grandma says, oh, sweetie, we haven't done that for years. We used to do that when your mom was a little girl because we had a small little roasting pan, you see, and that was the only way we could fit the roast in the pan. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and, and that's how, you know, most of us grow up, if you will, as investors. It's those early paradigms that we take for granted and we don't question. And for most investors today, those earliest paradigms that have shaped our existence as investors is all surrounding the stock market. And even though that strategy hasn't worked so well since the turn of the century, those early paradigms are really hard to shake. They're really hard to break. So that's why we're talking about getting back to basics with overprotection, getting back to maybe what the generation of retirees from the 40s or 50s or even 60s might do. Yeah. Okay, the second principle is about financial due diligence. So tell me what what exactly is that principle involved? Yeah, I, I like to talk about the second and third kind of together. One is diligence and the other one is detail orientation, and they, they kind of go hand in hand. Because if you are an investor and you look at a star rating on a mutual fund 
or you're an advisor, and a lot of advisors do this too. They'll look at a star rating on a mutual fund, and if it's five stars, they'll put their clients in it. Uh, if it's two stars, they won't, and they don't go any deeper. Well, that may have worked in the 80s and 90s when the markets were going straight up. It doesn't work anymore. Today, there needs, you have to have a much greater sense of detail orientation when looking at the particular holdings you're considering buying. Uh, we learned that in 2008 with, in the fixed income world. You know, there were some bonds, for example, that were high A-grade bonds, investment-grade bonds by the rating agencies, and that were going bankrupt within six months. So it's important, even in the fixed-income world, to look beyond just the ratings to look at the actual financials of the company. To have that, somebody has to be very detail-oriented, but they also have to have the sense of diligence to do this. I tell people that, you know, you tend to do in life what you love. And if you, if you love this kind of research, then you're going to have the diligence and you're going to take the time to look at those types of details. You're not going to be satisfied with a five-star rating and buy a fund or a buy rating and buy a stock or a Moody's rating to buy a bond. You're going to look deeper than that on all levels. So how can an average person who may not be trained as a financial analyst, doesn't have an MBA or something like that, what can the average person do to be more detail-oriented and what things I should look for that would be flashing red signals to avoid? Well, the first thing is just to avoid when you just see yourself looking at the surface, looking at the big picture. And most people know whether they're big picture or whether they're detail-oriented. You know, if you're the kind of person who digs in details and starts to feel anxiety in your chest, well, then you probably shouldn't be doing it yourself. Um, you know, there's certain things in life that you just have to be detail-oriented to be good at. Um, investing is one, and flying an airplane might be another, for example. And so to me, if someone doesn't have that skill, then they really should look for an advisor that does. But again, you can't assume that all advisors have that. The reality of it is I found that only about 15%, one out of five, of the overall population really possesses all seven of these core values. And it shouldn't surprise anyone then that only about 15% of all financial advisors also possess these core values. So it's important when interviewing an advisor to ask them questions about how they get their research. So if somebody knows, okay, I'm not detail-oriented or I'm the guy who's supposed to look over my holdings today, but as soon as my friend calls me and says, let's go play golf, I'm off playing golf, well, then you have, to, you have to know that about yourself and go look for the advisor who is going to be there for you when you can't be. So what you're saying is for a lot of investors who are not going to spend the time to do financial diligence and be detail-oriented, that your job really is to find a good financial advisor who will do it for you if you're not really up to it. Is that what you're saying? That's absolutely correct. And again, in the 80s and 90s, you didn't have to be diligent or detail-oriented you could throw a dart at the Wall Street Journal and, and buy whichever holding the dart happened to hit, and you probably would have made money. Um, but it's a, it's a different world today. So it's important that when that person makes that first realization that, okay, I'm not detail-oriented or I, I don't love this enough to be as diligent at it as I should, then to go out and find the advisor who's going to do that for you and to ask them how they get their research, how they do their research. Do they just buy the research from... Uh, other Wall Street-based facilities that might have a lot of bias, or do they actually dig deep and do their own research? Or even worse, do they just 
look at the star ratings or the buy recommendations and, and go based upon that. Very good. Okay, we're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is David Scranton. He's the CEO and founder of Sound Income Strategies, which you can find at soundincomestrategies.com. We're talking about his new book, which is called Return on Principle, Seven Core Values to Help Protect Your Money in Good Times and Bad. A website for that book is Return on Principle, spelled P-R-I-N-C-I-P-L-E.com. We're going to get that right. Very good. All right, we'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is David Scranton, CEO and founder of Sound Income Strategies. His new book is called Return on Principle, Seven Core Values to Help Protect Your Money in Good Times and Bad. A website for that is returnonprinciple.com. Welcome back to the show, David. Well, thank you, Jordan. So now we're at principle number four and five, which you call financial coachability and leadership. So describe what those principles are and how those can make you a better investor. Yes, and just like detail orientation and diligence kind of go hand in hand, coachability and leadership do also. You know, some people, and again, this is really just, Socrates said, know thyself. You know, some people, you know whether you're a person who's open-minded and you know whether you're a person who tends to be stubborn and clings on to what you've always believed to be true. And a good investor is really somewhere in the middle. Um, They don't get swayed with a light breeze. But when there's a preponderance of evidence that should take them in a different direction, they can make that decision, and then they have the courage to proceed in that different direction, even if it is the, 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 really the, the path less traveled. So that's what coachability and leadership have to do with. Coachability is the part that says, okay, when faced with this evidence, what are you going to do? This is what I did back in the late 1990s. When, you know, I just gone through and passed one of the most prestigious uh, exams to get a credential in my industry, and during that time, it was an interesting eye-opening moment that I think changed my career, and I think a lot of your listeners can get a feel for that. There's always a few key things that happen at certain times of your life that, that, that really changed you for the better. And one of these was when I was studying for this credential, and I opened up, and I was, I was studying about this new math of 
investing, these new modern mathematics, they, various subdivisions of what's called modern portfolio theory. It was basically some kind of alchemy where you can mix together different asset classes and subclasses and create some kind of sub sort of uh, alchemy that pretty much eliminates the risk or all but eliminates the risk. And I was studying about how great these strategies really are. I was opening the Wall Street Journal, and I was learning that the largest hedge fund at that time called Long-Term Capital and Management was self-destructing. And they were right. using these strategies. So, of course, you know, half in jest, I call the people that were given the exam, and I said, gosh, how do you want me to study for this thing? And they said, well, you know, the exam's already printed, so just study what's in the book and ignore what's in the newspaper, which is the answer I had expected. But what then happened was, of course, if you go back now some 16, 17, 18 years later and you study for that same credential, you'd be actually being taught the same things, the same strategies that we found that failed three times since then. It failed once with the long-term capital management implosion, again with the tech bubble bursting in the early 2000s, and again with the financial crisis. And that's where sometimes even the schools that teach financial advisors fall into the trap of being stuck with and glued to what they've always believed to be true and being unwilling to change. So what would be an example today, David? What would be an example today of a kind of old rule investing that a lot of people still believe that's not true, where you should be open to changing your mind and going a different direction in today's world? That's a great question. A lot of people still think you could be almost fully invested in the stock market. And if you have a mixture, a blend between small cap and large cap stocks and growth and value companies and domestic and international companies, it'll significantly mitigate your risk. But as we saw when the tech bubble burst and saw again with the financial crisis, it didn't matter what your mix was within there, all of those holdings dropped in value. To take it even further, the basics of some of this is the ability to combine stocks and bonds on the theory that one zigs and the other zags, and therefore mixing the two together creates some sort of financial alchemy, if you will, that mitigates your risk. Well, the reality is we just saw this a couple weeks ago. The stock market dropped a few hundred points, and bond prices dropped. So now it's like stocks, bonds, and oil are all dropping in tandem. So all those philosophies are, are now out the window. So people should and, assume that the markets are more correlated with each other and not moving in opposite directions? That should be the, the new assumption going forward? They have to make that assumption, yes, and then they have to assume that the only way to really protect your money is to be in things that are more conservative, that are designed for protection. You can't stay in risky assets and mitigate the risk through some sort of financial alchemy. You literally have to reduce the amount of risky assets in your portfolio. And, and, and that's a big differentiator. So the coachability comes in with the example that I'd given you back in the late 1990s. You know, I was a stock market-based guy, and when I saw long-term capital management fail in August of 1998, I started studying long-term stock market cycles. And I realized something that I hadn't known, that every time price-earnings ratios get up around 30 in the stock market, it means the long-term secular bull market cycle that we're in is about to end, and we're to slip into a new long-term secular bear market cycle. And it was that coachability in me, for example, that caused me to say, wow, I didn't know this, but now faced with this evidence, I need to change my model. Now, 
A lot of others were catching on to that at about the same time. But where a lot of people fell short was with the leadership component. You know, everybody in that time was in the stock market. Jordan, you remember, you couldn't go to a cocktail party back in the late 1990s without someone asking you whether you thought eBay or Amazon.com was a better stock. Remember those right. days? Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and because of that, it, there was the phenomenon that even when some people were faced with the evidence about the fact we're on a brink of going into a secular bear market cycle, and part of the reason they were faced with that evidence is because I brought it to a lot of advisors. They still didn't have the courage to make the change. They didn't have the leadership to take the path less traveled. Why? Because everybody in the financial field was buying mutual funds, buying stocks. The party was still raging as far as the, the, the stock market cheerleaders, as I like to call them, are concerned. And, and, and that's why so many people went off the cliff at the same time. So again, and you're saying it's somewhat similar now. Come together. I'm you're sorry? saying it's somewhat similar now in that we haven't gotten to a 30 PE, but we're getting up there. We're getting near the cliff, I guess you would say. Yeah, and we don't have to get up there yet because to get to an average of 15, that means you've got to have the high times and the low times. Well, we had the high times in the late 90s, but we haven't had the low times yet. We really haven't seen single-digit PEs yet. And, but yet, historically, we've never recovered from one of these long-term secular bear market cycles until PEs get down into the single digits. Yeah. So it's, that's the bigger concern. All right, so let's go on to the final two principles, uh, number six and seven, which you call financial honesty and fearlessness. We've talked a lot about fear here and, and people making the wrong decisions and you know stay, staying until it's too late and then they fall off the cliff. So how can people use financial honesty and fearlessness to be better investors? Well, financial honesty, again, as Socrates said, know thyself. Being brutally honest with yourself is where it starts. What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? Uh, when I turned 50, I finally allowed myself to become a private pilot because I started flying a little bit in my 20s, but heck, I couldn't even drive a sports car back then without getting myself into an accident because I wasn't mature enough. So I looked in the mirror one day and said, you know what, you don't deserve to be a pilot. You're not mature enough. And then by the time I reached age 50, I speculated that maybe now, maybe just maybe, I am mature enough to become a pilot and to be able to fly a plane. So you have to know yourself and know your strengths and limitations. If you know you're the person who's out there on the golf course and you're never going to lay up, you're always going to go for it over the pond onto the green, then you know you probably don't have the value of, of overprotection because you're, you're the person who's a good offensive coordinator but not so much a defensive coordinator. Uh, if you are not a detailed person, person you're big picture, well, then you know you don't have financial detail orientation. If you love investing, and I've got some people, some clients that just love doing it, they love the research, they'll sit in front of the computers from 9.30 to 4 every day, that's great if it's really what you love. But if it's not what you love, you're never going to have the diligence to, to, to spend as much time on it as you should. And at the end of the day, you shouldn't unless you love it because life is too short. Okay? And again, coachability and leadership. It's important to be brutally honest with yourself. Are you, are you, you stubbornly cling on to certain concepts, or are you open-minded when faced with a preponderance of evidence that maybe something you always believed might just not be as true as you thought? And then do you have the courage to move in that direction, even if you're the only one going there? And why do you need to be fearless as an investor? I mean, it seems like a lot of 
fear is running investments today. People are worried the stock market's too high, that the bond market's a bubble. Uh, you know, there's a lot of fear out there. How are you supposed to be fearless in today's environment? Great question. One, one last thing quickly on honesty, if you don't mind. I'd like to say that the, in the medical world, that there's a Hippocratic oath that doctors take where if, if somebody has a question outside their area of specialty, the doctor must refer someone to that other area, to that specialist. At the end of the day, if you have to have open-heart surgery, you want to have open-heart surgery from the person who's done hundreds, if not thousands, of those procedures. You know, not, not the generalist who maybe did an open-heart surgery once or twice during his residency 30 years ago. But in the financial field, there is no Hippocratic Oath. Uh, you know, people tend to go beyond their specialty just to make people happy and to make a client happy. And unfortunately, if they're doing it as a one-off thing to please a client, that usually doesn't end well. That's not their niche. So you have to get that advisor to be brutally honest with him or herself as to what his or her strengths or weaknesses really consist of. Yes. The fearless. fearless, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, so let's get back to the fearlessness. Yeah, the fearlessness part is really the sum of all the other six. If you adhere to the other six, then you can truly live a fearless retirement. But you can't live a fearless retirement if you're in stocks or you're in mutual funds and you're taking a withdrawal, uh, as was popular again in the 80s and 90s, to take a withdrawal, i.e., let's sell some shares, and it'll be okay because it'll grow back the next year. That's not fearlessness. That's insanity. You know, If you jump out of an airplane without a parachute, that's not fearlessness. That's truly insane. But if you jump out of an airplane with a parachute that's well-packed, and you've had some instruction, now perhaps it's not insane anymore. It's fearless. And if you stick to these six core principles and you get to that retirement point where you're planning on living off your interest or dividends, not taking your principal, and your interest and dividends are consistent, then you can truly live a fearless retirement because you know what your income is going to be in the future. You can project it forward, and you can feel confident, and you can build your goals around that because... You know, I had an advisor bring me a case yesterday, not yesterday, last week rather, where somebody was earning about $100,000 before retirement as a couple. And they told him that they wanted to retire on $27,000 a year. And I kind of was taken back by that. And I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are they saving 73000 a year now? And he said, well, no. And I said, so they didn't give you what they really wanted. They gave you the absolute minimum to just barely pay those utility bills and property taxes. That shouldn't be what retirement's about. Retirement should be the time when you get that second chapter of your life, when you can really open up, take that paintbrush, and build the retirement that you want. But you can only do that if you know you have consistent income and consistent cash flow and by following the other six principles. Very good. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is David Scranton. He's the CEO and founder of Sound Income Strategies, website for that, soundincomestrategies.com. And we've been talking about his new book, Return on Principle, Seven Core Values to Help Protect Your Money in Good Times and Bad, a website for that book, returnonprinciple.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is David Scranton, CEO and founder of Sound Income Strategies. His website for that, soundincomestrategies.com. Welcome back to the show, David. Well, thank you, Jordan. So let's get into some of the sound income strategies you're recommending these days for people who have money basically in cash earning nothing or in bonds earning you know, 1% or 2%. What are some things, some, some uh, asset classes that people can use that are relatively safe that give them higher yields than cash or bonds? Yeah, it's a great question, and the asset classes that I'm going to portray here in a, in a few minutes is, is the, the things that exist between what I call the bookends of investing. The bookends of investing are bank CDs on the conservative side and the stock market and stock-based mutual funds on the risk-oriented side. And, and those are the two instruments in, on each side of the bookends that had served investors well, again, through the 80s and 90s because CD rates were... Six seven percent through a lot of that time. I mean, heck, I remember ten years ago we had CDs over five percent. So if somebody wanted safety, they were they would suffice. And yeah. the stock market, like we said, is going straight up, and that worked worked great. Um, but of course, it hasn't worked so well for the last sixteen years. So all the things that we're talking about are not new products. You know, Wall Street loves to create these products, but the problem is all these fancy products tend to make more money for Wall Street. And frankly, some of these products are the types of things that got us in trouble during the financial crisis eight short years ago. So we're talking about getting back to basics with some of these asset classes. So what are some of these things? Well, they're not sexy. They're not exciting. Um, in fact, they're dull, old-fashioned, and boring in many people's eyes. But today, a lot of people say, well, heck, if I can get 4 or 5% dull, old-fashioned, and boring... You know, I'd rather do that than a hair-on-fire roller coaster ride. So, what would be some examples? Some examples for uh, if somebody's in a high tax bracket, uh, municipal bonds can still work. A lot of municipal bonds today are in the high twos or low threes, but they're tax-free. So, if somebody's in a forty percent tax bracket, it's almost like earning five percent. Now, you've got to be you've got to be careful, of course, because there's some municipalities that aren't in great shape. But as long as you have the sense of diligence and detail orientation to pick through them, then municipal bonds in general are still a great asset class. So what would, what would, would you buy individual municipal bonds or unit trusts or closed-end funds, open-end funds? How would you play munis for the average person? With all these things we're going to be talking about, I much favor individual holdings because individual holdings, within an individual bond, you know what you're going to get. You get a fixed interest rate for the life of the bond. And although the bond fluctuates 
between now and maturity in value. Uh, if you choose not to sell it, if you choose to hold it to maturity, you're guaranteed to get your principal back, providing there's no default or bankruptcy. So individual bonds are designed to be a secure thing because if you hold them to maturity, you know what you're going to get. If you sell them early, well, then, yes, you're selling them in the second mar- secondary market, and you might get more or less for them. Mutual funds actually take something that's made to be conservative, like a bond or bond-like instrument, and by buying that through a mutual fund, it actually makes it riskier. And most people don't know that, Jordan. If you ask most of your listeners what's riskier, a portfolio of individual bonds or a bond fund, most people would say, well, the individual bonds are riskier. And that's simply not the case. The bond, when buying them through a bond mutual fund, you eliminate those two guarantees that I spoke of before. So you don't have a guaranteed fixed interest rate, and you don't have any date at which the fund matures and pays back all the principal. So but you, need, you need a minimum bond. amount of maybe at least 100000 to do individual bonds to make it worthwhile, right? Yes, you do. In fact, I'd say probably closer to 150. Some of the instruments we're going to talk about here are, are you could do it smaller amounts, but for pure bonds, yes, you, you probably want to have about 150000 to do that. That's correct. All right, so muni bonds would be the first one. How about preferred stocks? Is that something that you like? Uh, they are, and between preferreds or even or, or corporate bonds. And, you know, corporate bonds, you might get 4 or 5% taxable, and we're not talking about going to low-rated junk bonds. We're still talking about investment grade or medium grade, but 4 or 5% you know, taxable return. And the important thing here is it's a fixed interest payment. It's not crossing your fingers and toes, hoping you buy a mutual fund and it goes up in value by 4 or 5% a year. It's literally paying a fixed interest or dividend of that rate of return. When you buy it, it's stated on the certificate and you know how much income you're going to get. And so you would not do high-yield, riskier bonds, corporate bonds that have lower ratings but higher yields? Not for most of our clients who are members of, as I said, the income generation, those born before 1966, because it's just too much risk. And junk bonds tend to fluctuate more with the stock market. When the stock market takes a hit, they will drop in value. Yeah. So for the right investor, junk bonds could work, but you have to be really, really careful. Okay, so we talked about individual munis, individual corporate, high-quality, high-grade corporates. And then preferreds yeah. would be the next one on your asset list? And, and preferreds are the next one, because if somebody wants a little higher yield than an investment-grade corporate bond, but they don't want to go to something that's real junk, that's low-rated, then they can go to a preferred. Because today, people can get 55 even 6% yield on preferreds, and again, get a dividend that's fixed, that's stated right on the certificate. Not like a regular stock dividend where the company could cut it or anything else, a dividend that's stated right on the certificate of the preferred, and you know how much you're going to earn. Preferreds are interesting because they're a hybrid between a stock and a bond. I mean, they're technically considered a type of stock, but they're actually much more bond-like in how they behave because they've got that fixed dividend rate. They have what's called a par value or face value, just like a bond, you know, where it's issued at a certain price and it comes due at a certain price. Uh, the, the, the thing that makes preferreds a little higher yielding is the fact that they have a little more risk than a bond. But the biggest risk in, in, as compared to a bond isn't so much a default risk, but it's because preferreds typically go on for a very, very long time. Uh, typically they mature in 50 years, 5-0, or they, they don't mature at all, which simply means that 
you know, at some point, either the investor or the investor's heirs are going to want to sell those in the secondary market. But it's a way to get more yield and have consistent income you can count on to live a fearless retirement. What are some of the industries that are issuing preferreds that you would like, that you would think would be quite safe? There are, there are financial industries that are issuing preferreds, and I was, even before the financial crisis of 2008, I had a lot of people in financial preferreds, but I purposely picked companies that I thought were too big to fail. And as it turned out, I was right. Even AIG preferreds never missed a single dividend and popped right back up to value once the, the, the federal bailouts began. And now the government's made it even easier because they've come out with a too-big-to-fail list. So now they're actually telling us, okay, wink, wink, don't ask, you know, don't ask questions, but these are the companies that we will not allow to fail. So buying financials, preferreds, and those, you know, knows that you're ba- It's almost like buying a government bond in a way. Yeah. Um, and then there are certain utilities. Uh, that are very strong when it comes to preferreds. There are certain REITs, REITs, that issue preferreds, uh, and so on and so forth. So there's not all of the ten general industries that you'd have in the stock market, but four or five of those industries are in the preferred market and are pretty sound. Another asset class you talked about is annuities, uh, particularly, I guess, fixed annuities. What are the pros and cons of annuities in this, in this market today? Yeah, annuities... Is kind, annuities kind of like an insurance company's version of a bank CD, where they're a financial intermediary, financial middleman, just like a bank is. They take your money, they lend it out, and, of course, they're in business to make a profit. But meanwhile, they stand in the middle and they guarantee you against loss in case they don't get repaid. Now, you've got to be careful with annuities, because annuities are like the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, there's some that are really strong, and there's some that are problematic. So you really have to look at the details. For example, there's some annuities that have fees that are well over 3% per year. But you don't expect to look at a prospectus and see it stamped right on the front. This annuity has fees of 4.2%. You have to read through dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of pages to get there. So when we're talking about annuities, we're talking about some type of fixed annuity that really doesn't have a fee that pays some type of steady interest, as you indicated earlier. Yeah, and so this is the kind of thing that you as a financial advisor could help people because they're not going to be equipped to go through those pages and figure out which of the best ones are. Of course, absolutely. I mean, you have to be a Philadelphia lawyer sometimes to look through pages of an insurance company's annuity contract and figure out what you have. Um, and, and then, and then we, we go off, off of these things, which are fixed, which are more guaranteed, and we get into things that a couple categories that have a little bit more risk, because they don't have a stated or fixed dividend or interest rate, but still pay a high enough dividend or interest rate that for the investor that's willing to take a little bit of risk, they might be able to consider them. And these two categories would be things like REITs, real estate investment trusts, or BDCs, business development companies. But again, those are for investors who, who are willing well, to take a little bit of risk. Yes. That's very right. Good. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, David. Uh, we've got a lot of very good information out to people. Uh, let me just say again, uh, David Scranton's new book is called uh, Return on Principle, Seven Core Values to Help Protect Your Money in Good Times and Bad. You can find out about that at the website, uh, returnonprinciple.com, and his firm is soundincomestrategies.com. Thanks so much for being a guest. People have learned an awful lot, David. 
All right, Jordan, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate the time. Thanks again. And we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next.